Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast. I am here today with none other than Erwin Ambrose. Super excited to have you. Thank you for showing up. On a Friday at, at like five o'clock your time, four o'clock my time. I know it's a difficult time. We have families and stuff, but so thank you for taking your time. Let me introduce you, if you don't mind. You are an advanced certified facilitator of the Resilience Toolkit. Now, is that your Resilience Toolkit? We hear a lot in recovery that everybody's got these toolkits, but is this your proprietary, your own process? Well, I was certified in something called the Resilience Toolkit through an organization I now work for called Lumos Transforms. It's their signature workshop. And when I was certified in that, and that was created by NKEM and Defo, an incredible activist and leader and teacher. She was a nurse and a, and a midwife and um, one of the first African-American midwives in Southern California and one of just a brilliant human being. So she actually created that modality. And then what I did was when I was certified in it, being in recovery myself, I realized that there were three really important tenets of the resilience toolkit that like profoundly impacted my recovery. And that was that uh, the approach is embodied. It's grounded in trauma-informed approach and social justice. And so what I did was I aligned that workshop to recovery. And about a year and a half ago, started offering the resilience toolkit for recovery specifically. Okay. All right. Slow way down. Cause you just threw three things out that nobody talks about in recovery. What are the three things that most people tell you to heal in recovery? Off the top of your head, what do they usually say? My body spirit, right? That's kind of like in the AA rooms and they're going to say, Oh, you got to attack these. I love the fact that you have your own personal touch, your own approach. So I love that. Let me, before I give you a chance to talk about that, let me give them a couple more information. You are in recovery, you are into social justice, which kind of excites me a little bit. Maybe we can banter about that thin blue line a little bit. Uh, you're trauma-informed and resilience-oriented. I love that. And you have your own toolkit. So I am talking to somebody that loves recovery, loves the human spirit, and wants to help. For me to you, everyone, thank you for that. That's hard to find today. Yeah, I know. So. If you don't mind, let's hit me again with those three and kind of go to a layman's approach to what that means. Yeah. So the first one embodied, right? When we think of embodied, that kind of a tricky word, I think, too, because yes, traditional recovery does talk about mind, body, spirit. When they talk about the body, I think they're they're talking about necessarily just removing the substance from the body, right? So having a clean and sober body. But what I my approach and my idea around embodied is that embodiment means we have deep biological impulses for survival. They come up through the body, they move through our emotions, and then our thinking brain makes sense of them. And what happens is, especially in North America, we have a culture where we think our thinking brain can fix everything, right? There's a, a huge emphasis on CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, talk therapy, right? And what we know, though, is that our brain is actually the weakest tool we have in terms of addressing these deep biological impulses for survival. And 
I wish that it was different because if it was Brock, I wouldn't have needed thousands of dollars of therapy. I could just be like, body, you're safe. Body, you're not going to be abandoned. Body, you're comfortable. And it would just, all those sensations that I use substances for, it would just go away, right? If I could think them away, but it doesn't work that way. It's body first. So when we address the kind of dysregulation in the body, and that can be from complex PTSD, let's say from childhood trauma, from epigenetics, it can be generational, it could be community, it can be cultural, right? Familial. As that happens, there's a discomfort in the body. It's a reaction to, there's a word I'll throw out, but neurocepting safety or danger. It's not logical for a lot of us. A lot of us in the rooms or in recovery have trauma, right? So we'll have kind of these faulty signs, whether something's safe or not. And so we'll have these big reactions and we won't really understand them. And then, you know, what I find is though, is that we learn to work with that first and foremost, the thinking changes. So story follows state. So all of the wonderful tenets, the cognitive behavioral sort of tenets of let's say AA or Al-Anon or any other, you know, thing you're trying to do, it becomes a natural way of being when your body is settled. Because all we're seeking when we're seeking these substances is really, it's a ritualized compulsive comfort seeking to quell that. It's like a real, it's intense when you feel anxiety or you're shut down, right? Or when you're wanting to like flee or fight. It's just, we're always trying to sort of regulate this body and we are taught to look at external resources. So we're taught to look at, you know, I'll speak to recovery. Well, first we're taught like use alcohol, use drugs use relationships, use gaming, use phone, use sex, whatever it is, right? And then when we try to recover from that, it's use the meetings, use the sponsor, use the, you know, the therapist. You're reliant on all these external things. That's where that replacement theory comes in, right? You're giving up one addiction to go to the gym 100 hours a week. Yeah, totally understandable. Yeah. And it's been proven when you look at recovery determinants that recovery is incomplete with a dysregulated nervous system. So a lot of people are floating around. They're not using the one thing that regulated them. So they're finding many at gambling, you know, eating, right? There's so many things. And I find that when I can rely on an internal resource, I have tools that work in present time under 30 seconds to settle my nervous system to a closer, like, relaxed state, not always. It's not about like be calm and carry on. It's also acknowledging the social justice aspect of ecology. Like, is my stress state actually helping me? I might need to be a little activated, especially with COVID, right? Going outside, it was like being hypervigilant made a lot of sense. So, but when I got home and I was with my daughter, I'm a single mom. And if she needed help, I don't want to be hypervigilant then, right? So it's like learning how to work with this body was the first piece in radically altering how I viewed triggers or, and I really got to be like, oh, there's no disorder to me. There's nothing wrong with me. Of course I want to do that because this feels really bad. So if I can find things that work in the moment, and I was meditating daily, let me tell you, and doing yoga daily, and those things were great when I was doing them, but I needed something in the moment that really could help me respond to life differently. Here's what I want you to do. Ready? So someone's hearing you right now, Erin. They're into you. They're like, okay, yeah, I'm going through the same thing. And she's talking about this immediate tool and grounding techniques. We all understand those. But what is like your go-to? And I know you probably have a bunch of them. But what's one that you can share with this audience that may be able to get them through it? 
Yeah. So the tricky thing about that, and this is what I love too about the toolkit is less about the tools because there are, I don't know if you can swear on this. There are a lot of tools out there, right? There's hundreds of tools. We all know tools. We have breathing tools. We have, you know, mindfulness tools, right? But what's more important is actually the guiding questions, the framework of this approach, which is first, what am I feeling? Like, where am I? Like I create a map for people of the nervous system of their body and say, how do you know where you are on this map, right? So let's go there first. How do you know you're relaxed? How do you know you're stressed? What stress state are you in, right? Because if you're in an activated stress state of fight flight and you're like mobilizing to or from and you're feeling like your legs are bouncing in a meeting, let's say, or you've got that like, <gasps> right, you're irritable and jumpy, you're going to need a different tool. So let's say if you're like so stressed out that you're shutting down, that you're going internal. So the idea is what am I feeling and how do I know? Because then you can choose a tool based on that state. So if I just tell you to do grounding, I'll tell you, I worked in maximum security prisons, like I told you, and, and in probation camps with youth with high, high trauma loads. These were young women that had been commercially and sexually exploited and trafficked. And if I said to them, let's get grounded in your body right now. Let's all close our eyes and pay attention to our breath. They would have screamed and yelled and run out of the room. That's a scary place. That's a scary place to go. But if I said, let's listen to sound, they love listening to music, right? Let's go there. Let's look around. Because you're already, if there's so much going on here, going in more is not going to make sense. So personally, I do love, like for me, generally, if I stop and listen to sound and don't pay attention to my body and look around and actually look behind me and look for exits, I start yawning and I immediately start to settle. That works for me. That doesn't work for everyone. Okay, so here you go. Are you ready? I'm, I'm going to throw it at you, Erwin. Here, are you ready for this? Okay, so you have an individual. Me, me. So I'm that guy. I'm super hyper vigilant. I'm always paying attention to my exits. I know where I'm at at all times. I'm at about a 10 if I leave my house. I'm bouncy, all right? So if you put me in a chaotic situation, you put me in a battle, I flourish. I'm perfect. My mind calms down. But if you put me in Walmart with my wife and kids, oh my goodness. It feels, you know what I'm saying? Like that panic, the walls feel like they're coming in. I feel like I have no escape route. So how could you help someone get through that moment? Yeah. So I work with individuals and with groups and organizations. And I'll just say that if I was working with you individually, we would get really clear that there is a benefit to your hypervigilance. It absolutely serves you in certain situations. And we don't want to lose that. I would never be like, let's get rid of that, Brock, because that's an important part of who you are. It's kept you alive. It's kept you safe. Let's honor that. However, you need tools probably in the moment when you're in Walmart to be able to let your body know that you're not in danger because it is perceiving the walls of Walmart and your family as predators, right? I mean, technically, right? It's seeing that as all a threat. So how do we get it? And it can't be logical. You can't just say to your body, like, this is not a threat and it's going to calm down. So for you, I would try out a bunch of different things. Sometimes for people, like there's one called the butterfly hug, like actually like stroking your arms cross laterally, bilaterally. We're talking about like real, just biology of the body. There are different things that people go, oh, I settled a little bit. And then there's something called the therapeutic tremor, which is like a major reset, but you would need to actually 
one, be practicing these tools daily when you're not at Walmart so that they are strong enough when you go to Walmart that they'll put a dent in that shit. So you're saying I have to practice this stuff like I can't just run through it one time and then boom, I'm healed. Nope. Honestly, my workshops are basically one long argument to get people to practice these really short tools daily because that's the key. It's all about behavior change and creating new habits. Because if you just learn these tools, but you don't use them, what's the point? Invalid. Yes. I'm all about transformation. It's not like one and done workshops. It's like, let's transform your life. And what I found when I learned the toolkit and started living my life from trauma-informed principles and from a self-awareness and self-regulation, the way I responded to life was radically different. The way I parent, partner, friend, facilitate. And I'll just give a quick anecdote. My ex-husband came to me about a year ago and he was having panic attack, you know, and was like crying. I've never seen this man cry in his life, you know, and said, I, you know, you've been talking about the toolkit wah, 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 for years. And I've been like, whatever. But honestly, I need to know what you're doing because you are a different person. My anxiety was so bad before I was on Zoloft you know, all these things. And the way I move through the world from these tiny practices, like little bit a day, it's all it takes. Radically different. Nice. Okay, Aaron, we're going to move on to number two. I want to hear your second part of your toolbox because I want you to be able to share with the, these individuals, these folks, so they can hear what you're about. So number two? Number two is a trauma-informed approach, right? It's really looking at, you know, I'm a trauma nerd. And I think it's really funny because that word can be very triggering for a lot of people. But what I learned, I was actually working with, in 2013, I was working with a group. I used to do the storytelling practice. That's what I did in prisons and probation camps um, until I learned the toolkit and I learned about social justice. And then I was working with a, a group of highly, highly emotionally dysregulated youth, you know, a lot of them in the foster care system and whatnot. And so I was asking them to tell stories and some were doing great with personal narrative and some would fall out. And I said, I need to understand trauma. So I started studying trauma and would did a bunch of different certifications. One was the trauma resilience method. And then I moved on to the resilience toolkit, which is a trauma informed approach. And what I found is that there was a direct correlation between childhood trauma and substance use disorder and behavior compulsion. And this was radically missing from the dialogue in most spaces I was in. And there was a huge disservice being done for people. And so when I dove in and started being on staff at Lumos, where I actually do now trauma-informed strategizing and consulting with big organizations and training, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in this, in how to be trauma-informed, it's just a different way to approach life. And we can think of it this way because it's like universal precautions when I think of trauma now. Like, do you know, back in the 80s, you know, my teacher N. Kim and Defo talks about being a midwife back in the 80s and in hospitals, unless somebody seemed like they might have HIV, they didn't wear gloves, which sounds appalling right now, right? And then at some point they were like, let's just use universal precautions and all wear gloves for everyone, just, just in case. And so I feel that way about trauma because it's cultural, it's in communities universal precautions, and assume everybody's holding some sort of trauma. And so if you move through the world with the lens of a trauma-informed approach, which there's six tenets, right? There's uh, trust and transparency, safety, peer support, mutuality and collaboration, cultural humility, which is in, you know inherently anti-racist, 
and voice choice and self-agency and you kind of apply those principles to all your affairs, the way I parent is so radically different. The way I partner, like I was saying, you know, it's just, it's a different way to move through the world. And I find that a lot of people who have in recovery, a lot of them have had their voice stolen from them, have been marginalized, have been you know, victims of a systems of oppression and violence. And so to say that they're not empowered, to say that they don't have agency and voice and choice, when you give that back to people, the toolkit implies self-agency and self-efficacy. You have resources in you. That is inherently a radical notion. So how do you use that in recovery? How does somebody hear what you're saying and kind of understand the approach to it and utilize it? effectively. Yeah. So we think about trauma as a trauma healing comes in three stages. So if we kind of assume that everyone who has a substance use disorder, most likely, right, there's outliers, but most likely have some significant form of trauma. 100%. We know that childhood trauma creates extreme dysregulation in the body. You know, you go to a free state or a fight flight, you're just stuck there. And so you come to those people and you say like, so people need trauma healing who are in recovery. Let's just agree there, right? People need that. The typical thing we do is people come in and let's say somebody's drowning in turbulent water, right? They're in chaos and crisis. They're drowning in turbulent water. They're like, I'm drowning, right? What we normally do, the whole idea of like talk therapy or some of these things and a lot of the story sharing in some of those spaces is akin to looking down at those people off a boat and being like, oh, you're drowning? You're drowning, really? Okay, dive deeper. Dive deeper right now, right? Go deeper into what is killing you and what you're suffering from. Instead, the toolkit, the trauma-informed approach is here's a life preserver. Let's get you to shore. This is the work I do with individuals. And we're going to do the first stage of trauma healing, which is stabilizing and resourcing over and over and over again. It's how do you find a a relative sense of, of safety in the body? Don't even look at that water. I don't want to know. You don't have the capacity to hold those sensations right now. So let's just start here. And the pacing of that generally is done way too fast if it's done at all. I feel kind of like you where there's three stages of recovery, the case of the efforts, fight or flight, right? That's where we're all at. When you're bringing them into this trauma, right? I know you're not trying to rehash it and bring it back, but there is value at least for me, there was value in once I found some stability, my footing to talk about it. And that's where for me, my healing started is I knew that I had trauma, but I couldn't identify it. And then once I identified it, it was so hard to share with somebody that what happened. And then when it was out, I'm like, that really wasn't that hard. So when people are stabilized in resource, right, when I've worked with them over and over, I I say like you get in the kiddie pool and you get comfortable there and then you start swimming and then you become a good enough surfer or swimmer that you're ready to go tell your story. Or if the trauma was pre-verbal and like me, my trauma, a lot of my trauma was pre-verbal. I was a baby, so I can't actually talk about it. I had to work somatically with people to deal with the sensations that come up, right? So it took me a year of stabilizing and resourcing personally to be able to go to, to do that deeper trauma healing. And the third stage is making meaning and advocacy. And I believe like a lot of recovery spaces do a beautiful job of that, right? It's really making meaning of what happened to you. And I think of this like alchemical resilience. It's not like bouncing back up from where you were because that's probably a pretty shitty place. 
but it's like, how do we move forward and really make gold out of what's happened to us? It's like, you know, post-traumatic growth. It's like, I'm really interested in that piece. But what we often do is we just rush through that stabilizing and resourcing. There is so much value in unpacking and integrating trauma. But if you don't have the capacity to be able to hold the emotions that come up, you're just re-traumatized every time you retell it. And there is a like culture of emotional catharsis being healing. And I absolutely disagree. You know, I think that emotional catharsis is re-traumatizing if you're flooding the body and there's not a capacity to be okay with that. Let me share this, just kind of where you're going with this. I, I love it. I appreciate other voices, but I look at most rehabs and I know that you said a lot of people are doing good. I don't want to disagree totally, but from what I've seen locally, I've run my own recovery program. I had my own. I associated with other ones. And I think that's one of the biggest things we're missing. So if we understand that trauma is so big, okay, there's something happened in our lives that we're using drugs. We're hiding, we're masking, we're running, we're doing all these. But I feel like we do a great job in recovery, getting that individual sober. You're away from the drugs. You're away from the activity. You're away from the chaos. But I don't think we do a great job in trauma therapy. No. And I, it's really kind of insane when you think about pacing the stabilizing and, and resourcing stage that they try to do all that in 30 days. Thank you. That, and that's the problem. It's not that they're bad programs. It's timing. You don't have... It's timing. Yes. And everybody has their own pace. That's the uniqueness of the body and who we are as individuals. There's no one size fits all. There's no timeline that fits all. There's no diet that fits all. There's no exercise regime that fits all, right? Like we really have come to know that it's really about that agency and efficacy, supporting people to know when they're ready to examine their trauma and supporting them in doing that. And it just 30 days is not enough. So how does this individual know? That's a good point because there does come a time when all of our lives, and I believe this is where recovery is getting it wrong. This is where the rooms are getting it wrong because we almost feel pressured into sharing our story. We're in a big group and it comes to us. It's like, oh, damn, do I share? Do I pass? And then these stories of trauma just keep building and building, and your story gets bigger. My story, it's, it's almost counterintuitive at times. And you know, some people will benefit from sharing their story right away. Absolutely, right? I'm not taking away anybody's healing experience in the rooms, but I'm just saying, like when I worked with those youth, and I've worked with for 10 years doing these storytelling circles, right? And it was, it was why I love going to round robin meetings because, you know, people, everybody would share and it would have this kind of rhythm to it, and it felt really safe and kind of spacious. And so, but what I would find is some people, like when I was working with the youth or the men in prison, would benefit greatly from that experience. Some people would not. Some people would have a vulnerability hangover and they would never come back. Some people would feel like they shared too much and it was like, it felt really bad to them, right? So it's like, how do we hold all, this is trauma-informed approach, is giving people so much voice choice and agency. I call it ethical storytelling now, which I'm working on, like how to create this practice that's ethical storytelling where people have the capacity, the understanding, they know what's going on, so they know when it's okay to tell their story or not. 
And one of the things I say when I'm working with individuals, and I don't do trauma healing, I just do the first stage, right? I hand off to somebody, like there's so many brilliant modalities out there for trauma healing. There's EMDR, there's, you know, emotion, what's it called? Emotional transference therapy, right? There's like so many, like, go do it. Great. Go do that with a professional. What I find is that when people, I always say, if you're bored, if you're so stable that you're bored, that's a good time. Okay. Erwin, what's number three? Number three is social justice. And this one got me in a lot of trouble at the beginning when the racial uprising happened, you know, and, and a little before I was speaking out in meetings about the fact that I didn't think that racism was an outside issue because what I knew of the numbers and especially being in prisons and probation camps and places where you see the disparity of like, you know, racism and oppression, how it shows up that, and that there's mostly brown and black bodies in those spaces and very few white bodies. What I found and realized was most people impacted by these systems who were struggling with substance use disorder were black and brown bodies. And yet those were the least represented in the rooms that I was in at least. And then when I looked at the data overall, and I'm just speaking to kind of, you know, the 12 step program, the data is mostly, you know, middle-aged white men. And so what I was kind of speaking out about is we're not okay until everyone's okay. And if we really look at ecology, uh, like our cultures and our communities, yes, people can come to a meeting and be safe there. Or yes, people can go to a rehab and be taken out of their community. But if they're just going right back to that community right after, and we're not as a collective of recovery people advocating for like real systems change to like stop just catching the babies down the river, but let's go up river and say, why the, the baby's in the river? You know, like we need to really, I can't believe there's not an outcry to, to stop the sort of injustices that create trauma, childhood trauma and chronic poverty and things that create these addictions and these substance use disorders. That's interesting that you bring that up. So I, the last 12 years of my life have been living in Northern Arizona, very, very close to a reservation. And the alcohol and drug use on those reservations is astronomical. The problem is these individuals want rehab. They want therapy. They want to get healed. They want healing. The problem is this. They spend 30, 60, 90, even up to a year in a program. But now you take them and send them home to an environment that is on fire. Alcohol, drugs, abuse, just the physical violence that is being caused. So I, I agree with what you're saying, and I'm with you. I have no idea how you heal these communities from lifelong issues. I mean, I don't have a quick answer either. It really is something that keeps me up at night. I don't know. You know, I just know that we need each other to recover, and if we're leaving out whole swaths, whole populations, because they don't have access or resources, right? And yes, and they're going straight back into environments and ecology that does not support different habits and behavior change, then what are we doing? So how do we fix it? Because I'm going through the same problem here. And I'm going to tell you, I'm in Arizona. And Aaron, where are you at? I'm in Northeast Los Angeles. Okay, so Los Angeles. So you're going to understand the same problem we're having. In our communities, our parks are flooded with homelessness, with addiction. It doesn't matter what park. I mean, it's flooded. The alleys are flooded 
businesses are flooded. And what's interesting is black, white, Hispanic, it doesn't matter what they are. Addiction doesn't discriminate. It doesn't see color. It's affecting everybody, especially now with this fentanyl. But who's helping? I mean, this is a great narrative, but here's the problem. We're going to get off this podcast. We're going to post it. People are going to listen. They're going to get on board. They're like, yeah, yeah, let's do something. And then it's a battle of nutrition. You, you lose energy because the battle is so uphill and there's no system in place to help these individuals. Yes. And we're criminalizing them, right? When they really need mental health. Like, I mean, they really need support in a different way. And so it's like, we need policy change. We need people in power. We really need like leadership, people in power. We need to speak to them because you and I alone, Brock, like, what are we, you know, yeah, I can go and work with a few individuals. I can give, you know, the five free scholarship spots to my workshop. But like we said, if the ecology doesn't change, if the community isn't supported, it's, we're Sisyphean, right? We're just constantly like pushing that rock up the hill and it's rolling down every night. I felt that way in the probation camps, especially working with the youth there. Cause I would come in and my workshops, like first I tried to teach them the tools, right? You're like, teach them the tools. And these young kids were like, F you miss. Like, I don't give about regulation tools or what's going on in my body. I need to survive. And when they left there, they were going to go straight out and be with their boyfriend, right? Who, and their family, the only family they knew, the gang and the boyfriend, right? Who was their pimp. And they were like, I don't give about what you're teaching me because my life is so intense out there and I'm just trying to survive in here. So I was like, all right. So I ended up just doing writing exercises with them. But I realized my nervous system, I was the, the only regulated, soothing nervous system they would maybe encounter all day. And they just wanted to be there. They started showing up and saying, you know, we don't know why, but we just like being here. You know, people want to be around that, especially when you're on the streets all day and you're seeing chaos and you're seeing death and you're seeing drug use. You want to be able to remove yourself from that situation for a place to heal. And that's one of the problems is, let's say we do take these individuals off the street, like you're in camps and we take them out of prison. We're not changing the behaviors. Let's say this, we're not changing their nature. We are changing their behavior in modification by you have to be here or you have to eat at this time or you have to be at rehab at this time. But there's no nature change to where these individuals want it internally. Yeah, no. And and they're teaching DBT a lot in the probation camps, you know, dialectical behavior therapy. And I think there's a lot of good to that. Like, I love me some cognitive behavior therapy. I need it. But the truth is, if I'm hijacked by my deep biological need for survival, let's say I'm in fight flight, that hypervigilance, so let's say I'm shut down because things are too much and I'm overwhelmed, I can't learn, think, access anything cognitive. But I notice it when I settle my nervous system first, all those tools come really quickly. And I'm like, oh yeah, like that's the right behavior. Oh yeah, that's the right way to respond to this because I'm I can actually access information and use what I've learned. So I saw that a lot in the spaces that they were teaching these youth really great tools, but they had no capacity to learn them or keep them or behave really any different outside of that space. And yeah, so they would modify to survive. They would modify to make it through and regurgitate what they knew they had to say, but nobody was really like having, and also like, you know, probation, they're a mess, right? You know, like probation, you think about like, I actually talked to them a lot and the department of mental health there and had a lot of friends on probation. And they're just like, 
the lack of education around nervous systems and and knowing that behavior is predicated on a fight flight response they had no knowledge of that they were taking every response of the youth personally and all they knew was to subdue right it's just you know you tackle and you subdue that's what you do instead of understanding that they were all reacting off each other everybody was in hypervigilance everybody was like ready to go right at any moment and everybody in those spaces is wired hard. And we co-regulate as a species because that's what we do as mammals. So if everybody in a space, and you probably know this from working as a police officer, right? It's like, I look at like police officers and you know, from my posts, I am about like abolitionists, but not because I think police officers are inherently bad people or anything like that. I think the whole culture inner like creates this jumpiness right this like inability to actually be logical because they're so on like i need to survive and they're eating like crap most likely and odd crazy hours not getting enough sleep and the culture of whatever's going on inside the culture you have a keg ready to explode it's just a dangerous combination to have people with that much stress going out into the environment that where they might get provoked well, there's a couple of things that you said that were really important, and I want to just commend you. I love the fact that you have a voice. Most people that have a voice, they are speaking ignorantly. And when I say in ignorance, it's just they haven't sat down and communicated this with anybody on the other side. That's a big frustration for me. If you want to know about law enforcement, go speak to them. Go sit down with them. Go talk to them. There are some major issues within law enforcement. You said them. Eating is a big thing. In my opinion, the number one killer is sleep. So check this out. You're asking an individual to work night shift. We do this with, in the military, in POW camps, it's called sleep deprivation. Yes. And we do this as a form of torture. And then we want these guys under extreme fatigue to go out there and make a decision based on lighting conditions based on visual stimulants that you see in the shooting that i was in back in the day i didn't have a ton of time to make the decision and all of that stuff comes into it so do we get bad cops yeah we got bad attorneys we get bad doctors we get bad presidents we get bad i mean there's always somebody out there that makes us look bad as a group as an individual i think they're amazing heroes in every form of first responders but like you're saying, there are problems within that got to be, they've got to be fixed and regulated or the problem will continue just like homelessness and addiction and abuse and all these things that we're seeing is going to continue until we make a change. Yeah, I was part of an organization I was with. We had a, a worked with law enforcement trying to teach like mindfulness tools. And this was before I understood the embodiment piece and also understanding that like, when I learned about embodiment, when I learned about the toolkit, what it gave for me was deep compassion for myself, that I was not broken. I was not diseased. I was not disordered. I was stuck in hypervigilance. That was my personal thing, right? I was stuck in that hypervigilance from a chaotic childhood and violence and abuse and you know all that stuff. So what I learned was how to regulate that. And that also gave me incredible compassion for others because we all have the same biology. And now when I see someone's behavior, I don't think they're bad. I'm just like, oh, they're stuck. They don't know how to get out, right? They don't know. And so it's this incredible deep compassion. And so I felt that for police officers as well, as well as the men that had murdered that I was working with in the prisons, this deep level of compassion of like, 
And also, you know, in some of the anti-racist work I do, I'm particularly, you know, I don't know, I'm a race equity and healing justice facilitator, right? And so what I've learned is how to help white people unpack implicit bias because it's an embodied process. It's not just a cognitive process. So when we're working right with bodies in law enforcement or white bodies that have implicit bias, this stuff is deep, instinctual, and there's ways to unpack it, but it takes time. You have to want to practice. You have to want to unpack it. You have to see the need for unpacking that as dire, you know, and most people benefit from a system that that perpetuates a lot of these behaviors, right? So I'm sure in law enforcement, there's not a lot of like eat healthy, get a lot of rest. Let's change the hours. Let's like, you know, treat bodies like they actually are biological bodies and not things we can just abuse and abuse and abuse and think they're going to, we're going to make good decisions. I do have a question. So when you're talking about removing the white racism, do you unpack with all race? So African-Americans, Hispanics, Haitian, do you feel like the need that everybody needs a little unpacking? Their bigotry and stereotypes and prejudice exist across the board, definitely, across races, across everything. Racism itself is really more of a system, right? Racism, like you and I can have bigotry and beliefs, implicit bias, these kind of things. But actually racism is something where a certain race is put above others in a systemic way and that that race benefits. And so that race, whatever it is, that's put above and in position of power above others doesn't kind of realize even the ocean it swims in. That's the like the hard part is getting people to first realize that there's a way different world that other people are living in that don't look like you. I don't believe that there can be necessarily like reverse racism, but I do believe we can all hold a lot of bigotry and biases and stereotypes towards each other for a lot of different reasons. And so unpacking that, yes, that can happen with anyone. We're going to have to unpack it. I would love to invite you back on the show. I think this is, we could really get in and, and communicate this. This would be fun. I would love, I feel almost inept not having the other side of the fence, I would love to have an African-American come on, two Caucasian people talking about racism. It's just, for me, it's so difficult, you know? My sister, she married a, an African-American. I have nieces and cousins and family, and, and all my life I've been around it. I've been in Arizona, so we're inundated with every nationality. So for me to wrap my head around racism is really hard because from a youngster, my parents are from the South. My parents are from Mississippi. They were in it. They saw racism. And so that was one thing they instilled in us is we're not going to continue those behaviors. I, I love this conversation. I would love to continue, but I, I want to make sure that I, I told you 30 minutes. I want to try to keep you to that. I want to make sure that you have an opportunity. I know you have a big event coming up, September 23rd, Recovery Workshop. I don't want to call it the un unpacking tools. It's your toolkit. It's your, your class what you're doing coaching, correct? Yeah. Do you want me to sort of explain it or do you want to? Yeah, go ahead. I would love to. Rolf. Yeah, please. So it's a three-part workshop. It's two hours every Thursday from nine to 11 Pacific Standard Time. And it is basically, I set up the relevance about why practicing, you know, short tools that work in the moment to regulate your nervous system can have profound effects on your recovery in your life. So we really talk about what is addiction? What is it not? What does recovery mean to you? How do you define that? We depathologize and de-disorder. I don't even know if that's a word, but like, you know, I help people learn that you're not broken. You're just stuck. 
And how do you get unstuck is really interesting to me. So how do I help people learn how to get unstuck in ways that work for them in real time? And then it's really about like, then how do you keep doing this? So it's like, I talk about behavior change model and we use tiny habits and I'm very like, you know, it's just a really, it's like a, it's an educational, but also practical workshop. And you'll leave with tools that you can take for the rest of your life and a community that you can belong to that's going to support you in those practices, basically. So September 23rd, 30th, October 7th, 9 to 4 Pacific time. 9 to 11. Oh, 9 to 11. Sorry about that. It is, it is in, yeah, right. Uh, men and women are invited. And let me spell your name for all those. A-R-R-O-W-Y-N. Okay, and then Ambrose. A-M-B-R-O-S-E. And if they want to find you, what's the best link for them? Yeah, it's the one I emailed to you, but it if they go to lumostransforms.com and go on to like the calendar, they'll see like the resilience toolkit for recovery in September. They can just go on that link. And there's like I was telling you, there's three scholarship spots left. There's five scholarships in every workshop. It's $210 normally, but completely free if you just are the first three people to take those spots. Your relationship to recovery, we we have a very like open door, open you know, like a definition of recovery where people come, you don't have to be abstinence. I'm a big fan of harm reduction and medically assisted treatments. And we're really welcoming anyone who has any relationship to recovery that they define for themselves are welcome there. I usually start this podcast off. I'm remiss on this. I usually start off by thanking all the first responders out there, everybody, nurses, doctors, firefighters, police officers, veterans, who are going through this trauma, who are experiencing these, these times. Thank you for that. Thank you for all the men and women who are serving. Erwin, thank you so much for your time today. I invite you. I would love to have you back on, love to continue this conversation. I know there's so much we haven't unfolded, but thank you for your time today. And I'm really appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, Brock. Thank you. And I just want to say that I love working with first responders. They're near and dear to my heart and they need support the most. So like happy to be here. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.